Hey, y'all, I wanted to take a second before we get into this episode to remind you that the show is also available on YouTube. And starting from episode number 101, it's all in 4K. I'm trying to make the best video podcast I can, so definitely check it out and subscribe to the channel if you haven't already. Go to youtube.com slash at progressionspod or hit the link in the show notes. If you're not getting enough progressions and you want to get even more thoughts on creativity, productivity, and growth in music, then you should sign up for my newsletter. You'll find a brief article in each monthly edition as well as updates on progressions and myself. I'm also sharing some workflow hacks and links to stuff that I found interesting or helpful. So it should be fun. If you want to stay up to date on the latest and get all the bonus stuff, go to travisferentz.com slash subscribe or click the link in the show notes. Hey, welcome to Progression, success in the music industry. I'm your host, Travis Ferentz, and this is episode number 90. Today is all about the ins and outs of sync licensing. I sat down with co-owner of the Haller Music Group, Ben Morris, who has about two decades of experience in the sync world. He covered his career working for both a major label as well as an independent, why he decided to start his own company, what a typical sync licensing agreement looks like, why artists should be open to doing custom music for brands or agents, how a sync can change the trajectory of your career, and the importance of building your brand off your own values. But first, frequency bias. Is it holding your music career back? And how can you overcome it? And for you audio nerds out there, no, I'm not talking about EQ frequencies or analog tape alignment. So what exactly is Frequency bias. Frequency bias is a cognitive bias referring to the tendency to notice something more often after noticing it for the first time, thus leading you to believe that it has an increased frequency of occurrence. It's also referred to as frequency illusion. Think you test drive a car and then it seems like it becomes the only car that you see on the road. That is frequency bias. So where does this play into your music career? First off, it can hold you back from growth and stunt creativity and innovation. If you found early success or positive results in a particular genre or with certain techniques, then you're going to be more likely to identify more opportunities in those same spaces. Think about it like you've got one tool that does one job. So you spend all your time looking for that job as opposed to building a whole toolbox that you can use to do basically any job. This episode is mainly about sync licensing, so let's use that as an example. Maybe you found that you excel at doing the whole cover of a well-known song with a minor key flip thing that used to be super popular in trailers a few years ago. You keep noticing it in trailers, you keep doing it over and over again, maybe finding some success with it, which even furthers your belief that that's the only way to get a trailer spot. But eventually, that trend is gonna wear out and you're gonna be left with a catalog of the same thing. And you'll have missed opportunities to improve by ignoring other music requests. You may have even stunted the growth of your network because you continually worked with the same people that are looking for the same things. The second way that frequency bias affects your music career is that it can shape your perception of it. It does this in a few ways. First, it can lead to a skewed self-assessment of how you're doing. You might overvalue your familiar achievements and undervalue unique opportunities or areas for growth, thus distorting your view of progress and making it harder to pinpoint where you need to improve. Next, it could narrow your focus of what success is. You could start defining success on a limited set of criteria that's determined by what you or your immediate peers have already experienced. This happens 
all the time in the music industry, especially with social media putting people's success on display for all of us to compare ourselves to. And lastly, frequency bias can reinforce your existing beliefs about your career and the industry. This is something I've talked about on the podcast before. As you encounter more examples that support your current viewpoint, you become less open to alternative perspectives or possibilities. This can create a self-reinforcing cycle that prevents you from challenging your own assumptions and recognizing changes in the industry. So now that we know how frequency bias can hold us back, how do we overcome it? Well, it's easier said than done. Start by being aware of it. Be conscious of your potential preconceptions, be open to new ideas and experiences, and actively expand your network. Make sure you collaborate in styles outside your norm and embrace innovation in the industry. If you're actively trying to stay outside your comfort zone and always trying to push yourself, then frequency bias is not gonna be a problem for you. Today's guest is Ben Morris, co-owner of the Holler Music Group, a sync-focused music publisher and label that has been making waves in the industry recently. Ben has over 15 years of experience in sync licensing, having previously worked for labels like EMI and Domino, He's secured high-profile placements for all kinds of artists from up-and-coming indie acts to established superstars. He's a champion for independent music, and he's always got the best music recommendations. So welcome to the show, Ben Morris. What's up, man? Thank you, thank you. It's nice to be here, dude. Yeah, it's so good to see your face. We haven't uh, we haven't talked in, in a little bit, man. It's awesome. I know, I know. It's been too long, man. I'm glad we get to do this. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, from working the desk at Capitol Studios to, uh, you know, co-owner of a label and publishing company is uh <laughs> it's pretty epic i love it i love it it's funny man i was brought up the i brought up how we met with a friend yesterday and they were like oh how did you get to know travis and i was just like you know it's funny it's like my first gig in music was sitting at capital this desk and then travis was you know a runner uh, trying to be an engineer and a producer and we kind of like started at the same time it was really cool actually and it was a long it feels like a long time ago now man you like took my job and also got me promoted all at the same time because at the time there wasn't wasn't enough studio work so i was like answering the phone for three days a week me and another guy were splitting the phones and then we would do studio days on the other days and then you came in and did you know all of uh, paula's admin stuff lots of phones and booted us down to the studio so like i was super thankful to stop picking up the phone i look back at that time i really enjoyed that like year i was in the studio i knew nothing about recorded music when i came into that gig yeah so like meeting you and the other guys that worked down the studio was really honestly like it's really dope and i look back on it really fondly and like honestly like still speak to people like yourself and people that have come out of those gigs it's cool it was a fun time it was a really fun time just uh you only worked there for a year Dude, that gig was like a year almost to the day, yeah. Oh, that's crazy. I think I answered so many phones. I got to the point where I was like, I need to not answer the phone anymore. And then I went upstairs and answered the phones for a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you went up into the tower. You went into like the music business part of yeah. the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the Capitol Records building. But um, you know that building's closed now. No? Really? Yes, yeah. The studios are closed. The, the lab- Wait, well, the studio itself is closed? Yeah, so the building needs uh, earthquake retrofit, and so they had to empty it out for like potentially two years. Whoa. So they moved all the label people to another building, and the studio people there. Oh, I recall actually people telling me that they moved the label people. I didn't realize the studios itself had just closed down. It's kind of worrying thinking about those echo chambers that you guys used to like <laughs> go down into. That sounds pretty gnarly thinking back. We love those echo chambers. Echo, <laughs> yes. You haven't lived until you've crawled down that ladder under the parking lot and gone into the, the just damp echo chamber, just for no apparent reason, really, just then to go down there. But 
pretty wild knowing that there could have been an earthquake at any time and it could have like <laughs> just fallen in. I think you'd be safe in the echo chambers. I don't know if anybody would ever get you out. So you'd be safe free. until you died in just there. Poured concrete. You just live down there. <laughs> uh, anyway, so we, we have to do a podcast too. I know. Uh, okay, let's do it. B- yeah, before we go. <laughs> so I want to do a little bit about your backstory before we get into you know what you're doing now. Okay. I know you're not a musician, but you're like an avid, crazy music lover. Like, Where did you find your love of music? How'd you end up trying to get a job at Capital? Damn, that's a good question. Um, my love of music, I think, um, I mean, I wouldn't say it came from any place in particular. I think it was just, um, I grew up like, you know, around your parents, listening and hearing what they play and whatnot, hating a lot of what they played. Also, <laughs> like, my mom has questionable taste in music and does it with my dad. But like, listen to a lot of Motown and soul and um, like the good stuff. This is a bit different. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and then I kind of found my own way a little bit when I was, God, shit, like 10 or 11 and really started listening to hip-hop and Britpop and I would make tapes. I would, my mum wouldn't let me buy um, any CDs that had the parental advisory, or not CDs even, there were still tapes around that time, like that had the parental advisory thing on it. She's like, no, that has cursing and then it's bad for you. And I was like, okay. That sounds like my mom. <laughs> I get my cousins to just burn, like rip them onto tape and I just listen to them anyway. Yeah, I rem- I listened to a lot of everything, like Britpop, hip hop, anything that was just I don't know, Ren. I don't really have a like a I always had a love for music and film, any sort of media I feel like, and always gravitated towards music heavily. And then just became a collector. And not a collector in such that, you know, actually I still have all my CDs, it's a lie. But like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I just started collecting and the more and more I did it. I ended up with a lot of music and just immersing myself into that world. Spent a lot of money. Uh, before I moved to the States, I was buying hip-hop CDs on eBay that you couldn't get in the UK and things like that. I was spending a lot of money on music. And I think that's just where it came from. That's awesome. Just grew my love over time. Never studied music. Just do regret not like learning the guitar or the piano at an early age, just so I had more knowledge of you know, the way music was made. And you know, But there's still time me to do that maybe when i actually can stop working for five minutes (laughs) but uh yeah so i became just a fan went to live shows grew up in a place where music was very prominent brighton in the uk it was had a great music scene and was exposed to a lot of cool shit and then moved to the states and didn't work in music in the uk sorry and then i worked for a bank and then moved to the states very similar (laughs) yeah man (laughs) it was awful (laughs) <laughs> I did like it was awful. I hate every minute of it. But like, I was lucky when I moved to the states to be able to like, you know, focus and be like, you know, what do I really want to do here? Like, I have an opportunity to kind of, you know, start a career. And um, my um, ex-wife just encouraged me to pursue music. She's like, you love music. This is what you, you know, you talk about it every day. You make playlists. You make mixtapes. You do all this stuff. Like, you should just go pursue it. So I ended up just applying for a gig at um, at Capital. Like. She knew someone in the A&R department at the time and like, you know, I applied for the gig like the normal way and then she just gave her a nudge and I got an interview and that's how I ended up at Capital. That's awesome. I didn't do any other music gigs before that, but I did that. <laughs> I don't know if you know who I worked with before for like a month. I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so random. Not many people know. I don't bring it up very often. But now you're going to have to bring it up. Yeah, now I'm going to have to bring it up. Yeah. But like I, yeah, I got my ex-wife's company or like a booking company and they got word that seal was looking for a personal assistant uh, yeah as in kiss from a rose yeah. <laughs> like 
So like, there's me, like twenty four, twenty five year old Ben, like living in LA. Never been like it was very wild. Drove up to this house in like Bel Air, did an interview with him, and like we got on really well. Like he just kicked cool. it. He made, he burned me a Pretender CD, and like um, I worked for him for like a month. So I just did like you know general personal assistant stuff and yeah. But like uh, it didn't pan out mainly because of visa stuff. But um. It was cool, but that was a good thing to put my resume. It was one of the reasons I think they ended up getting like an interview at Capital. But I still don't talk about it very much. It's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> I still forget they actually happened in so. I love that he, bur- he burnt you a Pretender CD. That's kind of funny. It was cool, man. He was like, listen to Brass in Pocket. I mean, I already knew what Brass in Pocket, but the way he broke it down and like sat with me, I was like, damn, this is really cool. Yeah, that I always look amazing. back at that. I wonder, I must have that CD somewhere. Yeah. yeah I'll find it. So, okay, you were working at Capital Studios, kind of just like foot in the door in the music industry. Then you went upstairs to the label. Uh, remind me, you went straight into the sync department? or Yeah, yeah. Do you remember when we were, um, when we, I was down in the studios, was right around the time that Guitar Hero and like Rock Band were getting really big. That was a huge moneymaker for everybody, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But there was a guy up in the sync team that was relaying or like was the coordinator between the label of all the... Um, the stuff that they were trying to get onto Guitar Hero that was based on Capital and EMI and Virgin and whatnot. And they were liaising with the studio, the mastering guys, right, to get the stems created from all the old tapes, which is a pretty cool process in itself. Yeah. And I got to know the guy, Jake, who was um, who worked up in the sync team. And then, yeah, it was literally like after about a year of being down in the studios and us having a bit of a back and forth, he was like, dude, there's a gig going upstairs. You should apply for it. And that was how I applied for it. And that was where I went for it. That's amazing. Wait, Jake uh, Volgaridis? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I went to school with him. That's that's uh, that's that's funny. Yeah, I know, man. It's crazy. Yeah. I saw him a couple of weeks ago. He's still floating around in the sink side. He's on supervision now. He's um, uh, he did the podcast early on, and um, we talked about it. And he had just taken a new job, and we decided that it was probably not not a good thing to put out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, he, he started to become, you know, f- figure out like what, what the rules of engagement were yeah, when you're yeah, yeah. for a corporation. And he was like, I don't think we should do this. And I was like, yes, I was like, well, shit, this was a really great conversation. So maybe one day when, when he gets fired, we'll drop that. Yeah, man, uh, we should do one together. We'll do it from both sides. Yeah. That'd be cool. Yeah. I love that. He's a good guy. Oh, I wanted to jump back just for one second and describe that, that Guitar Hero process to people that are listening. There was like the studios at the time were recreating stems from things that didn't exist so like you know something like the pretenders track or etc that was just a multi-track the studio guys were recreating the mix then printing stems that could be used in the game so it was a pretty crazy process and kind of a big deal at the time i still don't understand how they managed to do it (laughs) like not because i don't know how it works yeah like i don't know how you can take something that's like analog like tapes and change it and make a multi-track out of it in that sense it still blows my mind that they did it. It's pretty cool. They're doing that same stuff with the the whole Atmos thing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Like there's yeah. there's guys and girls that have to take like an old Bob Dylan record and turn it into Atmos, but they have to recreate the mix. It's not like these days where, you know, stems are printed and it's like really easy to make it sound like the song. They're going to recreate and stuff and people are like comping vocals and stuff. It's crazy. Anyway. That's wild. We're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about sync, <laughs> sync licensing, right? <laughs> yes. What was it like to to step into that world? Like, obviously, you probably had a little bit of a learning curve, but then a lot of, you know, music going to picture, a lot of that is also just feel and emotion, I think, of like what works. So what was that early process like when you were kind of figuring that business out? 
I think um, going into that gig, I was kind of unsure about effectively, you know, what, what it really was at the time. I knew what music supervision was and was always interested in music supervision and didn't really know the other side of it existed at the label. So I didn't know these teams existed where you took all the music from, you know, all these records and all these artists and put them out there to encourage people. I didn't really know the ins and outs of sync licensing until I went up there and honestly just got involved in it. Yeah. Honestly, it was a it was a great team to be part of. I couldn't have like um, I probably couldn't have asked for a better um, stepping stone into the sync world. Like um, my boss at the time, Joe Rangel, he was running the the creative side of the team, and there was I can't even remember. There was probably like six or seven of us underneath him. It wasn't like a small team. There was a bunch of people pitching, yeah, all different medias. And I came in at the coordinator level, and there was a few coordinators, and I handled a lot of marketing. So I got to know like the catalog itself. Like by building newsletters and getting used to the repertoire, putting things out and making sure people had like files and things like that. It was a really, really good time for sync as well. It was like right when like Grey's Anatomy was at its peak yeah. and a lot of music was being used, very lucrative, like Vampire Diaries was on everyone's. We worked some really cool records as well, like, you know, like LCD, Coldplay, Gorillaz, like Katy Perry, like these big, big records that you saw a lot of success from and it was really cool to be part of. Yeah. And that wasn't until they sold themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you mentioned it, I kind of had a question I was going to drop later about that, like, we'll call it the like, Grey's Anatomy heyday of Sync. I feel like Sync was launching a lot of artists at the time, like a couple of people that come yep. to mind who were a little bit later, like X Ambassadors with that Jeep ad or Bishop Briggs had a big ad and she kind of like blew up out of nowhere. Is that still a thing or is landing a sync these days more revolved around also having an established brand? Like do TV shows want to see that you have followers and shit like that? Or is it still like, hey, we want to find an artist and blow them up? There's still a bit of both, to be honest. Man. Yeah. I think um, it all depends on the budget, I would say. If, the t- if it's a TV show, it depends on like the budget of what they're looking for. You know, commercials is different as well. If there's a, you know, some brands like, you know, it's easy to bring them up, but Apple. They like breaking new bands. They like being on the cusp of new music and uh, what's cool and like putting stuff out there. But I'd say like from an advertising point of view, there's still that, um, you know, a lot of what that gets licensed in advertising is still a lot of catalog. and It still has to, like they want recognizable brands associated with it. Yeah. I'd say it's probably not as easy as an independent artist probably to get sync in nowadays, mainly because it's just so saturated. Yeah. Not because people aren't willing to use it, but because it is just, there is so many people looking to get sync now. And it's such a massive market. Is it as saturated because people know that it's so good for your career? Like word got out? <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly it. It's pretty lucrative. You can make money by, you know, just having someone use your song and put it out there. And you're effectively getting paid to have your music marketed, which is extremely unique. That's true. Like usually like back in the day, you would, you would be... Um, looking for reviews or, you know, radio play. And Sync was aligned with that, but not to the extent it was now. But yeah, I think there's there's a balance. Like some people really champion like up and coming artists in their TV shows and, you know, their budget probably leans towards that way as well. But like, yeah, I think it's different to back in like uh, probably around the, you know, the late 2000s when Sync was really on everyone's like radar and like yeah, budgets were big. <laughs> budgets were big and like, I wouldn't say they're like some of these shows still have big budgets, but like, you know, the streaming world has changed that dynamic a lot as well. Like it stretched it out. Yeah, that's true. Meaning that there's there's more work to go around for a lot of supervisors, which is great. But this also means that their budgets are more restricted. 
you know, it kind of helps when you're representing independent artists and you can be more flexible with fees because that's where they come to us. And yeah, it's ever changing, man. Yeah, totally. I, I just feel like uh, that, that like mid 2000s, I just feel like everybody was on like Grey's Anatomy and then they were always playing Hotel Cafe. I just feel like there was this like singer songwriter <laughs> yeah. scene in like Los Angeles where everybody was just on TV and then playing everywhere in town. But yeah, man, you like think about like the snow patrols and stuff like that. It was just yeah. like one of those things. It was just like, and it was also like, the, I think the music is itself like it was a different type of music that was being used if you compare the music to today that's being used on tv to to back then it's completely different man yeah it's obviously like changes over time what people are gravitating towards do you feel like what is working on television and film is generally a couple years behind what is popular on spotify playlists i feel like that's 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 how i feel it is but maybe not maybe a little bit um I think it just takes time. And maybe that's because like a lot of, you know, we're going back to what you said, like they're looking for people with a brand and like some people like brands and TV shows want to see people with streams, want to see artists that, you know, have good Spotify numbers that definitely plays into it in certain scenarios. I wouldn't say all of them. Like, you know, if a song's good, a song's good. Shouldn't really matter at the end of the day, how many streams it has. True. But yeah, definitely plays a factor into it. Yeah. And I don't know. I think, I think just by going, like saying, going back to how there's so much music out there now, so much music compared to that time, that using a song from like, you know, I think TikTok's a really good example. Like you see songs from like eight years ago become popular on TikTok now. Yeah. They weren't popular back in eight years ago. Yeah. But like it's given them a new life. And I think people have, you know, they see this window within sync now instead of wanting the new music all the time, they're okay with it being two or three years because that is kind of new because there is so much music. You might not have heard it. Yeah. You might not have heard a track from two years ago that's like perfect for sync. Well, I think there's also like a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say vetting, but it's like the longer music's out there, there's like an emotion that's attached to a song, you know? And if if that emotion mm-hmm. is what you need at the end of your scene or whatever, it makes sense that you would drop that in. It's why, you know, like you were saying, car companies and stuff love to get their, you know, Rolling Stones ad or, you know, or whatever oh, yeah. it is, right? So Yeah, man, they want to hear the Black Keys. Exactly, exactly, exactly. If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button, and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes. So before, I got a bunch of other questions, but uh, I just want to tag a little bit more of how you got to where you are. You left Capitol at some mm-hmm. point and you went to Domino. I think you you moved to New York. We tried to stop you, but you left us. <laughs> <laughs> LA, uh... I love my time in LA, but I realized I was an East Coast boy. Yeah. Being from the UK, I wanted to be closer to home. Yeah. Not that I go back all the time, <laughs> but like, uh, it's just nice to be that clo- little bit closer. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really like the city. I mean, it's home now, but, um, so yeah, I moved back and, um, but right around that time was when you were around that time, I think still around the EMI world when they were put up for sale. Yeah. And the sync thing was really strange, man. Like we ended up. The sync team from the label got merged with the sync team from the publishing company. 
from EMI publishing. Right. Which was a really strange thing to happen if you look at it outside now, because they're definitely they're two different entities. Like it's not as if they had a lot of crossover. They were yeah. completely different systems. It might you could have but just because it was called EMI, it might as well have been called like, you know, it could have been just called progressions publishing. <laughs> like it didn't matter at that time. Yeah. But it was really strange. They were trying to they were trying to create value by putting the teams together and ultimately, you know, push the work from <laughs> what the label was doing onto the publishing staff and let go of the label. So we all knew we were going to be, I knew the writing was on the wall with our roles eventually, which, you know, was when you're young and you're starting up, it was, you know, a bit of a tough thing to swallow. But I think it was a great opportunity for me. And it, I don't think I would have left had it not been like that just happened. But right around that time when they were up for sale, it was um, Domino, UK based independent label, were looking for someone to come work in their sync licensing team in North America. And I went crazy. <laughs> I love that record label so much. I knew a load of their music already. Like, so I just went crazy when I applied for it. I hit up every single person that I knew and I was like, can you email them and put in a good word for me? Because I really just want an interview. And I think I got an interview just by pestering them, to be honest. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I did that. And yeah, I got that gig after a couple of weeks of interviewing or maybe a month or so. And that was at the start of... Uh, Oh, it was the end of 2011. Yeah, it was amazing. I was stoked. Like, I remember just being like, do you want the gig? And I was like, yes. And I don't even think I'd asked how much it paid. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, yes. And they're like, cool, you make 20 grand a year. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, they were joking, obviously. But like, <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I was just excited, man. I was like, I'm like going back to like my love of music and like it was really exciting for me to know that I was going to be working with music that I truly felt passionate about and like could get behind and like not to say I didn't feel like that about stuff at EMI but there was stuff that I, you know I didn't you don't major label stuff that you're not as excited about and that's yeah. not where my taste lies yeah I think that's okay so you got to work bands that you were fans of yeah man yeah it was awesome that's awesome it was really cool and you know I still do but like yeah, so that was uh, 2011, and then yeah, I didn't. I was there for ten years. So <laughs> wow. Yeah, we grew out uh, from it was myself and uh, my counterpart handling the licensing side. I was strictly creative, so I was just handling everything from marketing to pitching to you know doing meetings, doing coffees, traveling, like you know showcases, whatever we could do to you know elevate our roster and our artists and our writers. Now, when you say strictly creative, you're talking about like not having to do the paperwork. Is that what yes, you mean? Yes, basically. Okay. I didn't have to like, you know, I knew, I knew, the, <laughs> I knew the value of, um, of like what our copyrights were worth and like what I was pitching for and like making sure they fell into the right budgets. But once I got something on the hook, I would pass it off on to my counterpart, Sago, and he would take over in the negotiation side of it, which is what he's amazing at. Yeah. Still is, yeah. It was kind of nice for me in that sense as well, because I do lean more creative. And I know people that have to do both. I mean, I have to do both now. But <laughs> <laughs> so like having that balance of being able to be creative and also negotiate is tough because it is a lot of time goes into going back and forth and emailing like terms and licenses and making sure people have the, you know, the littlest things. Yeah. So given the freedom to be able to just strictly be like, yeah, this is what I'm good at. I'm good at, I'm good at selling. I'm good at like, you know, getting people enthused about what I'm excited about. And I was getting a pretty long leash in order to do that. And I, you know, I have a lot of respect for the people that did that for me. It was cool. That's awesome. Like it was a great way for me to, you know, 
just get used to what I wanted to do and really find like find my footing in the industry. That was a big growth period, I guess, for you trying to figure out what yeah what works for you and what works for everybody that you're working with and kind of yeah. start doing your own thing almost. Yeah, it was. And I became, you know, you know, you become like Ben from Domino. Like I still like, I still get, oh, you're Ben from Domino. Like when I meet I'm South by this year, I haven't worked for Domino for two years. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, I know you. And I'm like, yeah, I used to work at Domino. Like, oh yeah, Ben from Domino. And I was like, shit, man, I've got to change that. <laughs> like Ben from Holler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, that's how it's eventually it will be that. But you know, there's, there's worse things to be associated with. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, it goes to show, you know, how much you got done and how much responsibility you had that people can say that, you know, there's a lot of people that work for labels that nobody remembers, you know. Yeah, I agree, man. And I was given a, like a platform and like had a lot of support around me in order to be able to go do that and like build out a team and like, you know, make it successful. It was cool. It was really cool to be part of. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So that came to an end at some point. And let's just do the quick version of how you got to holler and talk about what you guys are doing. Yeah, so left Domino in 2021, at this time two years ago, actually, yeah. And then, honestly, was took a bit of a break, like from just a month. I say a break, sounds like I was gone for a year, but no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like taking a nap. I just signed a lease on a new place in Brooklyn. So took that time just to honestly move apartments and just take a bit of time off music. It felt right after I started Domino, I had the kids. I have kids, obviously, but like you know that, but not everyone who's listening does. But like, so I started Domino in September, and then I had the girls in November. So there was only like two months at Domino where I was like child-free. So I hadn't really had a break for ten years. <laughs> no proper like full-on vacation, like you know. Yeah. So it really, was got to the point where I was like, you know, I stopped. I was like, you know what? I'm going to put my feet up for a minute and just kind of. I stepped away from music a little bit. I stopped listening to music for a minute and just took a breather. Yeah. And kind of tried to work out what I wanted to do. Like, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back in-house somewhere, but I'd always entertain the idea of doing something for myself. Yeah. Like, even when I was sitting at that desk at Domino, like, yeah, I sat there and thought, you know, it'd be cool to own my own pitch company. I can do this. Like, I'm, I know music. I, but, like, having the courage to actually do it was another thing. Yeah. So, um, yeah, long story short, I have a colleague who works at another third party called Visions from the Roof. This guy, Grant, and we've, we're friends and... He does exactly the same thing I do, but he works out of LA. And we were going back and forth a little bit. And he was like, hey, would you like to just come in, you know, slide in with us and do your thing? And they didn't have as much presence on the East Coast. So it kind of made sense for me to come in and help them build out their ad side a little bit. And, you know, I helped sign some stuff like to the roster, like some cool labels and some cool acts. Yeah. And then kind of cut my teeth in the freelance world with those guys. Cool. Did that for a bit and then reconnected going back to EMI. With my old boss from EMI, Joe Rangel, who, when I left EMI to go to Domino, he left EMI to go start his own third-party licensing company and pitch, like, um, publishing company, which ultimately got bought out by Pulse Music Group. Mm. And he was there for a while. So we kind of came full circle after, honestly, like 10 years. We stayed in contact through that time, obviously, but, like, uh, he hit me up and was like, hey, how are you doing your own thing? I'm starting to do my own thing again. Like, let's have a chat. And it was, that was kind of it, man. Like, he's done it all. That's awesome. Yeah, he's an inspirational dude. Like, he's built our company and sold them. And, you know, he's elevated artists. He's broken some of the biggest artists. He was Prince's sync guy. Like, he just <laughs> jumps on the phone with Prince, man. 
<laughs> like, yes. I mean, I'm I'm not really doing him justice in my description of him, but he's like. Well, you said Prince's sink guy. I mean, that's that's a big one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a mic drop. Handling is a, yeah, man. Like, just done done a lot of good things, and like you know, bands like Run the Jewels, where we go back to like you know people that um did really well in sync and people were looking for like brand and stuff like you know they were, did really well in sync and joe was part of that movement it's dope. so like he came in and said i'm doing this i'm gonna start a new company you know how would you feel about being part of it and that was where Hawler came from and you know sick it was a tough decision to be honest to like move on from working with the guys at visions because i was really enjoying that work and you know there's always the unknown as well shit i've got to start this is really starting from like the bottom like visions had like a roster that i could work with but this was starting with nothing, basically. It's kind of exciting, though. Yeah, that was also a lot of the draw. You get to paint the canvas, you know? Exactly. And, you know, it being mine and having ownership. And, you know, it was it was a really cool opportunity. So we did that. That was honestly coming up in almost a year. Nice. Be almost Congrats. a year, I think, next couple of months. Yeah, man. It's cool. That's awesome. I love it. Okay, so I have to ask you some questions. I was thinking about it. And I was like, okay, the show's on YouTube now. I should like make some clickbait shit up. So um, <laughs> if you're watching right now, this is a great time to hit the subscribe button. But I have some questions that I, that I, <laughs> that I think are, are, <laughs> are, are legitimately, I think they're solid questions. But I'm just going to throw a couple things at you. And this is kind of like okay. for artists that are trying to get syncs, for artists that want to know what sync licensing is, just like some of this stuff, right? Okay, so we've talked about your story. We've thrown the word sync out a million times. For an artist that's super new to this world, what does a sync deal usually look like? Are there terms and points that they're going to see? Is there like, you know, expected dollar values? It really depends on the company that you're going to be working with and the people you're working with. But from a sync, like a representational like model, it comes from commission. That's where like we make money. Mm. So someone signs their publishing rights to their music or their master rights over to Paula just for sync representation. We go to bat for those people. That's as simple as it is. And we try and increase the value of their copyrights by doing that. Mm. But like, it depends. Like if you go sign into a label, you go sign to a publishing company, they're going to have in-house sync teams, nine times out of 10, that work in those places. So if you're going to go in-house, you know you're going to be, you know, part of a bigger roster. Right. Whereas if you're an independent artist, you're coming to a, you know, a company like Hauler or the like, the rosters are a little bit smaller, a little bit more focused. You know, you're not competing necessarily with a lot of people that are already on the other roster, which is cool to have that focus and like that for, as an independent artist to have someone actually like really going to bat for you, which is, you know, what I like to do. Yeah. But like from a monetary point of view, it's hard to predict. Like if you've got great music, I, I believe it will end up getting synced. Right. It could happen in the first six months of signing a deal. It could happen in two years down the line. And like we talk about like TikTok and things like that, where songs don't resonate in the public eye until someone just puts it on a random TikTok after seven years and then all of a sudden they're big again and they're off on tour. Yeah. Same can happen with Sync. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, from a basic deal, like if if you get a license for a, for a TV show or anything, the way ever we license music, we just take a commission off that, like a nominal fee, and it's just across the board for each song. So when you sign a deal with us, we take a percentage, and then the rest goes to the artist. That's basically it. So unless we're putting in the work, we're not making money either. Right. So it's in our interest to get your music out there, to pitch it, to make sure people are aware of it, like to actually work. 
like because I don't, I can't pay my rent if we don't work. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, do you think really how it works? I guess one question that would be a yes or no answer is uh, like if I have a publishing deal, can I still sing, look for third party licensing? I mean, if the publisher has a sync team, probably no. Okay, they're not going to want that. No, going back to when I worked at Domino, we never had anyone like pitching really in, a, in line with anything that we published. Okay. Or, or had on the record side. That said, if you know, if you have a publishing deal with a company and your masters are open, that third party could pick up the masters. Mm. So you could still have two companies working for you if your masters are open. And vice versa, if you have a label deal and you don't have a publishing deal, those people can pick up on the other side. That's kind of how we operate. Mm, right. Actually, you know, best friend, people that you work with, they're a good example. Like we're representing them from both sides because they weren't signed to a label and they didn't have a publishing deal. Recently signed to a label. Yeah. I don't know if that's common knowledge or I'm allowed to say it out loud, but anyway. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so they called me and they're like, dude, it's combined. We can't work together anymore. And I was like, yeah, your publishing's open. I was like, we can still pitch on that side. And they were like stoked. And I was like, yeah, cool. I'd love to still get some work with you. That's awesome. So you still can work in that capacity. And there's other ways around it. Some people, like, even if people do have label deals and publishing deals, like, sometimes people negotiate deals outside of that. But that'll come from the artist side. As long as, like, you know, those people are on board with it, it can work. Yeah. But it's sometimes it's a bit of like too many cooks can be a problem. Totally. Yeah. Do you ever run into a problem where like you're repping the master and you have a deal that's basically done and the publishing people are kind of, they're not into it? I mean, that's got to happen. The only times you'll get that, those sorts of issues would be with the majors where they have a higher ceiling for what they expect from, uh, from fees. Gotcha. So if we're representing the master for an independent artist that's signed to, you know, a big publisher and the budget for this TV show is minimal and we pitch it, that deal can be scuppered by a publisher coming in and be like, no, we need more from this. But that's up to us, honestly, and to know. What's going to fly. Yeah. Well, when you're pitching, you should be know what, what works for what budgets and whatnot. So I wouldn't pitch anything that's problematic to anything that, you know, in those scenarios but it does happen like yeah. sometimes you just suddenly work out that you've pitched a song you didn't even know there was a publisher on it because you've been told like it's <laughs> musicians have never been the, the best at uh, sorting their business out <laughs> no offense no offense that's another episode yeah there's a whole other episode for that um, okay hard change and I don't even know if this is an answerable question is there anything that makes an artist or a song more syncable? Good question. I don't know, man. That's a really good question. I wouldn't say there is something that makes anything. It just depends on what you're using it for. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's obvious, like, you don't hear certain genres of music that often in, in a film or TV or in commercials. It's not often you hear death metal. Right. Or, like, real screamo stuff. Unless it's actually like in one of those stereotypical like scenes where you'd expect to hear like you're in the like you're in a basement, yeah. yes, yeah, or you're in a basement and someone's like doing horrible things to people or something, and there's like always going to be like that kind of vibe to it. But I think one of the things I wrote down with this is that, like I said earlier, I do think that any music can work for sync. There's always a place for everything, yeah. Whether it be like an ambient piece or even a death metal song, I've worked with a really big metal catalog when I worked at Domino. We got syncs for that catalog because they would come to us and be like, oh, we need metal. And there is, when they need it, they'll come to you. So there is opportunities there. It's just not as fly. It's not like typical singer-songwriter, you know, pop that, you know, they usually 
um, exists in the TV world or, you know, upbeat kind of fun electro stuff that you that you hear on the commercials that, you know, it's just all dependent on what you're pitching for, to be honest. Yeah. Okay. For people that aren't listening, there's a thing called a brief that's kind of like breaking down what a spot is looking for. What's your process when like a brief comes across your desk and you're thinking about your artists? What's your move? Like, how do we pitch it? Do you mean? Yeah. Like, how do we go from there? Well, the brief will come in and nine times out of 10, there'll be references within that brief and they'll give you a breakdown of what they're actually looking for genre wise. There is the complete opposite of that where some people just send you an email saying, I need songs. <laughs> you're like, <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> do you have any idea of what kind of songs? <laughs> like, wow. I just need new stuff. And I was like, if I send you some of the new stuff that I have, I know you're going to raise your eyebrows. But like, um, They'll give you as much information as they can in order to get where they want to go, yeah. whether it be from an advertising client or a TV director or producer or, you know, um, trailers as well. Like what this, like the brand is looking for, or what the film is looking for. And it's our job to just go through the catalog. You know, sometimes when you, when you go through your catalog, you don't, you can't fulfill every brief. Well, here's a question regarding that, because I've always heard that it's better to respond with, sorry, I don't have anything that fits, then send something that's a miss because a lot of music yes. soups and directors get pissed, right? Yeah, man, you're just wasting someone's time. Exactly, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with that. And I think, always think, like, actually, something that Joe, my business partner, taught me back in the day was always less is more as well. Like, yeah. if you've got, like, three songs that really knock out the park, send them. If you have another seven that may hit it a little bit but aren't, you know, not quite there, hold back because like you said like these people are getting inundated with music all the time when you're sending pitches yeah slammed with music like a lot of people will ask you to limit how much how many tracks you send so they'll be like hey can you just send your 10 favorites which is still a lot if you're going out to yeah <laughs> you go i don't even know how many people they're going out to all the time but there's got to be like at least 50 at least right oh so yeah if you're getting 500 songs back that you can't listen to every single one of them yeah so I think, yeah, big believer in just sending what you feel confident in and maybe not overdoing it. I think that's the trouble, the, the problems that you can get into when you're working for a bigger corporation. You have priorities to push. So like there's singles, there's new artists, there's things you want to break, there's things that need to be pitched. You have to meet numbers. Like there's a lot of pressure on you to get that stuff out there. So that can affect your pitching and your mentality towards pitching. Yeah. yeah. I think it's tough. It is tough in that position, man. Okay, well, I guess kind of kind of like that slightly similar question. Like if you're repping a catalog, do you find that like directors or music soups, somebody might reach out to you and say, hey, we really want something by so-and-so artist. Do you ever get that? Do they come to you for an artist or is that rare? Maybe not um, like for something that they're going to license something that's already existed because if they want to license a song that's already that already exists, they can do that. Sometimes they'll be like, hey, does this artist have anything new that they're working on that hasn't been shared or is out there? Could you send that to me? I'm really interested in licensing something for them. Uh, or they go down the custom route where they get them. They're like, hey, we'd really like to work with this artist. Is there an opportunity here where we can get something made together, and like make something for this film or TV show? Or, you know, can they do a demo for a commercial? Okay, that's cool. I would imagine those things are probably the highest budget, rarest situations, like ending title to a movie... Big brand deals. No, okay, okay. Nah, you'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
I think, yeah, if someone really feels like they want to do something with an artist, it's not always going to be like, they might be coming to it like a place like Hauler or a Domino or a secretly to come for an independent artist because their budget might be more mm. like lower. It might just be like not being able to reach the highs of paying for the Rolling Stones and like the Black Keys of like what we talked about earlier. Like they want to, they'll come and have this mid tier where they'll be like, okay, you know, there's some really good writers here. There's some really good artists. Let's dig into that. Yeah. And that's become more prominent as well, like especially around the advertising world where music houses are coming to independent writers and producers and artists in order to demo. Mm. Instead of going to straight up regular composers, they'd be like, how can we engage the independent music community? That's cool. And they'll come to them and be like, hey, will this artist do a demo for us for this commercial? You know, you get a a small demo fee for doing it, but like, and it may not stick. But it's a really good process for these artists to go through. And it's also, you know, it's a little bit of an ego boost for them to see that they're, you know, these people respect what they're doing and already know, have them on their radar. Yeah. And, you know, trust them enough to actually go and do, go to bat for them. And I think it's pretty cool. Like, it's hard. Like, you know, like we go back to like any sort of branding, they do want to, like, a big popular song attached to it as much as possible. They want it to be huge, recognizable if they can, but their budgets don't always work that way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I did a lot of those like demo type things when I was working for a specific producer a few years ago and he loved to get his artist spots and, you know, a lot of demo work. But um, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's tough, man. And some people find it more difficult than others. And, yeah, you know, especially artists who, you know, have a unique sound. Um, they find it and, you know, work on their own in very like, you know, very isolated way. Yeah. And some of them don't take notes very well. Most of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough. And I've always encouraged people from that point of view to be like, you know what, put the eyes thing aside here. They're asking for your, your artist project, but you could do it under a different name. You could say, this is, you know, Joe Blogs. I'm going to do this for like these sorts of background kind of routine, like, you know, money. They make money at the end of the day. It's yeah. like, a, I always call it like, you know, just like, it's like busy work, man. It's like admin for them. It's cool. It's still making music though, but it, I think it would be a fun exactly, exercise yeah. for a lot of people because it's also an exercise in like kind of uh, being accepting of taking notes. Like you're you're trying to mm-hmm. make your art, but you're also not in control of it. So it's like a yeah. that's quite a like a thing for people to putting your ego aside. It's tough for some yeah. people, like in that sense, like yeah. being able to. I, I would find it difficult as well. Like I think it's yeah. it's tough, and but and also being able to take what people are giving you in a brief, maybe on a phone call or on a, in an email, and putting it into a song is not easy no like they can give you some sort of references to go by but it's tough man i have a lot of respect for people to do it but i always encourage people to do it as well i'm like you know what if it, even if it doesn't go through even if you don't aren't successful and it doesn't hit it's a great thing to do it's a great way to experience like writing cutting for picture and like you know demo and taking notes and building relationships too you know yep, it's like exactly you know so and so has done like 10 demos for us let's just keep going back until you nail one and then and they'll come back and they will you get your trailer check and everything will be fine yeah, man. <laughs> then you can just quit music. <laughs> you mentioned like uh, brands and stuff, like reaching out to the music community. What do you think about like, you know, producers that are making tracks or beats or music all day long, working with top line writers? Is there a place for like the instrumentalist style music producer to have a sync licensing rep? I mean, sure. I mean, you know, I think instrumental music's always going to be tough in that sense. Like, you know, the beats like um, beat playlists and stuff like that that became very popular during COVID. Yeah. That type of music, whilst it's great and has its place, it's very tough to put out there. Yeah. And it's very tough to license. 
Mainly because there is so much of it. Yeah. And, you know, you're competing against some of the best <laughs> as well. That said, like, you know, these producers could, you know, they attach a top line or attach someone else to it. And, like, it changes the project. It changes the dynamic of what you're making. Yeah. I think, like, we work with a few people in that scenario and they do that part on the side, like the beat or the instrumental stuff on the side. And that's one of their artistic sides. But on the other side, they're working in-house with produ- with other people doing co-writes and, right. you know, like stretching that muscle instead. Yeah. I think as a producer, it's good to be, you know, have a few eggs in different baskets in that sense. I agree with that diversification. Um, all right. I got one last question, which kind of is tied to that a little bit. I think maybe you may have hinted at it without saying it. But can we talk about music libraries for a second? Because I feel like there are so many quality music libraries. There is so much content like you know uh, my wife is watching uh netflix love is blind or something right there's music like top to bottom in the back of that show obviously all some kind of blanket license does the fact that there's all of this content being made and all of this music library stuff does it make licensing artists harder or is it still very clear when you want to go to ben and when you want to go to extreme music it's just different worlds, I would say. There are different, like, reality TV. I think, like, the way you're talking about Love is Blind, something exactly. like that, anything on Bravo. Nine times out of ten, they're using music library, like, cuts because they don't have music budgets. Yeah. And they don't see the value in having recorded music within those shows. And it's it makes a lot of sense. I get it, because there's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of talking going on. There's a lot of, like, yeah. But, like, that's usually, like, in those worlds, that's... I think there's, you can make a lot of money from having a music library. Yeah. You can, it's the same way that sync exists and you can make a lot of money. Having a great music library and having someone produce really cool tracks and putting them out there, you can make a decent amount of money. But like, it is tough, man. It is like a, a very, you know, people have deals like with networks and they're all put onto shows for a length amount of time or, you know, brands do it. Like a lot of online content is like, you know, you see like a, tutorials on youtube yeah it's cheaper for those brands to license a piece of music from a music library rather than you know have to jump through hoops to get approvals from four different publishers in order to license one song that probably wouldn't turn the needle right does that make sense like it's is it really elevating their brand is it like not to say that not to diminish the music that they're using but or dismiss it sorry but like um it's just a different world yeah it's hard to explain (laughs) <laughs> no, to- totally. To- well, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I think I phrased the question wrong. I guess I feel like over the last few years, the quality of music libraries has gone up. Yep. Have you noticed that spots that potentially would go to independent artists are now going to libraries because it's cheaper and you can find a great piano ballad? Or that just doesn't happen? Um, I wouldn't say it happens that often. Okay. Like it was, um, I wouldn't say they're competing. If you're, um, if you're going to a library, you already know you're going to get like, we want to, you, what you're looking for. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, totally. you know, and it's usually because you have a blanket deal with that library and it's what the budgets of those actual shows, it all comes down to budgets at the end of the day. Like whatever, <laughs> it all comes down to money. Yeah. That's always true. Yeah. Always true. Yeah. Dude. Okay. All right. So obviously we could hang out all day, but I got to ask you the, <laughs> the last three questions and then um, okay. I will let you go back to work. One of them is a new one this season, and it's basically a music recommendation. Is there any artist you just love that you think people should be listening to more? It's got got to be a short list, man. It's it's got to be short because I I put links. Well, in. I literally only put one because I'm, I'm you know what I was gonna do for you because I'm that nice. <laughs> I was gonna make a little playlist Ooh. of like stuff that I 
that for you to share after this of just stuff that you know i've been listening to lately Perfect. i'll be honest i dj on the side and i dj a lot of random shit like i don't i don't ever stick to like one genre of music or like one era like i've been djing a lot of funk and soul and disco and world music nice. lately and that's cool but like one person that i've been really digging into lately is uh eddie chacon okay who you probably know as one half of charles and eddie from back in the day oh yeah, yeah, yeah i had the massive hit would i lie to you so eddie recorded an album 2020 with um a guy called john carroll kirby producer oh. who works yeah he's works a badass like frank ocean badass yeah, player. amazing taste so they kind of like this guy hasn't worked in music for i think 25 years hadn't made any music i forget how they became friends and how they got together yeah but they got together and recorded this honestly impeccable album in 2020 it's so good that's cool i'm gonna check that out it's just perfectly produced it's gorgeous man you as a i think you'll like it as a producer anyway but like uh it's just so cool and he's got another record coming out i think friday actually it's kind of weird the end of march but like um i think it's awesome like as someone who's i think he's 59 and he's rediscovering his career after being like like leaving music or from the pop side yeah and then going off to be like a photographer and a creative director for an agency and stuff like that and then coming back into music and now having a career and being signed to a label like stone story for his next record is really cool but it given me kind of like as someone who's you know just dipped into their 40s and has started a new company and like you're always like shit am i getting too old to do this like it's nah. you know it's very inspirational nah, to see this guy who's 60 put out this amazingly like youthful like very cool record yeah so yeah i'd highly recommend that amazing that's awesome i'm definitely gonna check that out and and we got shout out to john carroll kirby the dude is a badass a badass player yeah yeah he's worked with some of the best people man. yeah all right. Amazing. So last two questions. Uh, was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you? You know what? I sat with this question for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, uh, honestly, I think starting Hauler was probably that moment for me. Like it's only been a year, but like you said, I don't want to just be Ben from Domino. I want to be Ben from Hauler. I want to be Ben Morris who has his own taste and his own identity Yeah. in that sense. And I want very much a want hauler to be an extension of my taste and my identity in music and what i stand for and that's what i'm trying to do so for me to just have my recognition from my peers and you know be successful in the sense like make money and be able to pay my rent and i'm not trying to make billions it'd be nice to make billions but like uh yeah i think it's really easy to look at like as success as something as as financial and I think just being happy and being content in what you do and working with the people you want to do and that company and my company being uh, built off my values, that's that's success for me. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm, I, in a sense, I'm already feel successful to be able to start my own company. I wouldn't be able to do this if I wasn't somewhat successful already. And it's I have massive imposter syndrome. <laughs> so like I still <laughs> I, guess I still like I'm at the moment where I'm like, uh, am I, can I do this? I like am I allowed to do this or should I be doing this? Am I just wasting my time? Like it is, I do sit and think that, but like, um, yeah. I just wanted to highlight something you said in there. You said, I'm going to change it to apply to more people, but building your career based on your own values, I think is something that a lot of people just unfortunately never make it to. It's tough. They build a career based on somebody else's values of what is like, what's important to other people. And then they never actually 
kind of get to be their own thing and it's unfortunate so i think that's i was really good yeah man and like i understand the need for like this like you know when i sign stuff to paula i sign it because i like it most of the time yeah and obviously see a value in sync licensing and publishing but i want to i love seeing people succeed i really want to help people even if it's just getting one little sync for them like for something like it makes a difference it changes people's lives and it can you know yeah turn the needle on a lot of things and i really get pleasure out of doing that so yeah like i want to continue to do that yeah just the like the smallest sync to an independent artist can just be the beginning of the ball rolling down the hill it can be man and you just never know what's going to happen you never know what's going to happen so i think it's awesome yeah and the last question before we go is what is your current biggest goal that you can share with us of course and what is the next smallest step you're going to take towards it? Honestly, sounds very basic. I don't own a house. I'd love to own a house. Like, you know, I never thought that I'd move to America at 24 and work in a music, uh, have a music career and, you know, went in, into my 40s. Like, and I think it took me a minute to really, I honestly, kind of establish what goals I've wanted. And like, I have kids and I've done that part and they're amazing and they're cool. But yeah. I want to, you know, I just want to have an easy life at the end of the day. Yeah. I really want to have, like, have something to pass on to them as well. Like, that's a huge, like, goal for me is, like, build a business where, you know, whether they, they love music already. I don't know whether they want to get involved in what I'm doing, but it would be really cool to be able to do that. So, like, you know, having ownership over certain things like my own property and my company and to be able to pass that on to my kids is important for me. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. Dude, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, man. I could have talked for another hour. I know. Well, you can't <laughs> hang up yet because I'm I'm gonna have Maggie bring Scotty out here so you can you can meet her. Nice. Yes. That's awesome. Hell yeah. Even though we're still in the podcast right now, but we'll leave that in. You can just edit that into the that's the clickbait, dude. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, share with people where they can find you, where they can find Holler if you're accepting music or or what. Or... Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, I'll happily share our like email from the, where people could submit their music you know, submission to be represented from a sync point of view or even, you know, down the line for publishing. But like my door is open in that sense. You know, I'll be transparent with people and say if it if I think it works and if it doesn't. But like I would say go to our website, but it's currently under construction. (laughs) 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 Um, But hopefully, hopefully that'll be up and running. But I'm on LinkedIn. I'm not on Instagram. I decided to move away from that (laughs) platform. It's good. But yeah, I'd happily share my email. My door is open. I'm not like, uh, I'm not trying to hide off. Dude, amazing. This has been a lot yeah. of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy now yeah. that you uh, own no, a company. Man, I so. appreciate you having me. And it was nice to, uh, yeah, it was really good to like, you know, just catch up and do our thing. I love that you do this. It's so cool. So that's it for episode 90. Thanks to Ben Morris for coming on the show. If you have any questions about the episode, please drop them in the comments or shoot me a message on socials. Thanks to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider sharing it with a friend. That is the best way to grow things. Thanks to Stephen Boyd for the audio edit, and I will see y'all next time.